Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. What I have for you today is a quick historical murder that became a landmark murder in the history of Denver. Starting in the 1850s, Colorado was a hot destination for people seeking their fortunes and eager to get to work mining the Rocky Mountains. Discovery of gold in the mountains stirred restless souls who wanted to find a new beginning, and fires could be seen lining the Missouri River at night from the countless camps that littered the shores. The California Gold Trek had already plowed through Colorado a decade earlier, but this time people were stopping to face the Rockies. Picks, shovels, cook stoves, beds, and even musical instruments like organs lay strewn about on the roads from people who were looking to lighten their carts on the way and to get here faster. So this was how the scene was set when the 23-year-old Jim Gordon and his father reached a camp on the Cherry Creek River in 1859. The camp was a collection of shacks that had sod roofs, dirt floors, and not a single pane of glass in any window. The rival town on the other side of the Cherry Creek was called Araria, and their constructions weren't much better. The streets had six inches of dust piled on them. The wind blew fiercely for much of the day. The town was populated by Arapaho, Mexicans, and whites, who were represented by the usual outlaws, ruffians, miners, trappers, gamblers, and politicians. Denver was still a part of Kansas territory at this time, and the nearest law was 500 miles away. The town had preceded any kind of government, and there were no sheriffs, judges, or courts. Every person in town acted as their own law and stored it in holsters on their belts. It was the quintessential Old West town. Gamblers and parasites were eager to swindle any newcomer or gold digger, and they could do it with relative impunity. Jim Gordon's father was a farmer, and Jim knew from an early age that he wasn't meant for the farming lifestyle. He was already getting into brawls, and Denver was perfectly suited for his wilder ways. At this time, there was one popular gambling saloon in Denver called Denver Hall, and it was a dirt floor building. Not long after Denver Hall came more saloons and gambling houses like the Criterion, Cibola Hall, and the Louisiana. A man named Ed Chase ended up building a gambling house on Blake Street, and he won over business by having a priest come bless the building with a prayer. Within a year of the humble Cherry Creek camp's beginning, and shortly before Jim Gordon ended up arriving with his father, shops and industry arrived in Denver. A lumber mill was built, a bookseller's advertised the latest from Charles Dickens and Alfred Tennyson, and lecturers frequently stopped at Denver Hall. Gambling was one of the only sources of entertainment at this time, next to the burgeoning sex worker trade, and this city was the perfect storm for a man like Jim Gordon, who was quickly ruined by it. Jim was 23 years old, he was well-educated, and was an engineer by profession. He was six feet tall, handsome, broad-shouldered, and charming. He easily made friends, as well as enemies, as he wandered the gambling houses, and one ruffian in particular caught his eye, one of Denver's most original and despicable outlaws, Charles Harrison, who ran the Criterion Bar. He was the leader of the lawless Criterion Gang, and fought hard to keep law out of Denver, as they acted as the only law Denver had. Charles dressed in the best suits, was a dead shot, never killed without warning, and demanded respect from just his presence alone. He wasn't entirely all bad business either. He once shot a man accused of murder who was trying to escape on a horse and knocked him off the horse with a bullet from a great distance. On July 12, 1860, Harrison shot and killed a black owner of a blacksmith shop who set up business in Denver after having to buy his freedom. The man entered the saloon and wanted to play into a card game. 
there was no arrest made for this murder. Tensions were high regarding the politics of North and South, and men from both sides congregated in Denver saloons. Two prominent Denver citizens dueled in the spot which is now Broadway and Spear after a political disagreement and matter of supposed honor, and another duel came about after a speech by an anti-slavery secretary of the provisional territories when a doctor from the crowd challenged him and he had wine thrown into his face. The two dueled on the Platte River in front of 1,000 spectators. The pro-slavery doctor who had wine tossed into his face was fatally shot and died after six months of agony. The general disregard of the law by even the most upstanding and prominent citizens came to a head in the summer of 1860, which would be an incredibly bloody summer for Denver. Denver was completely overrun with outlaws, thieves, and murderers. Only three homicides occurred in 1959, and that number was more than quadrupled in the following year. Drunks would pull guns on anyone passing by and make them beg on their knees for their lives for the entertainment or to steal from them. To make matters even worse, Denver and Auraria were rival cities at this time, with their own gangs and gang wars and disputes between the two towns, and it was all reaching a fever pitch. So Jim Gordon was, of course, at the center of all of this. He was a charming young man when he was sober, but he was careless and violent when drunk. This sort of disposition didn't bode well for him in Denver. On Wednesday, July 18, 1860, he hit the bottle harder than usual. He shot a bartender in a bar on Arapahoe Street who survived after a lot of suffering. Then the next day, he visited the man to apologize for shooting him, claiming he became a different person when he drank and he didn't know what he was doing. On Friday, Gordon went with friends, Fitzpatrick and Rookerbone, and they bar crawled, if you will, until ending up completely drunk at Denver Hall, where Gordon started a fight with the man known only as Big Phil. He shot at him, and Big Phil didn't want anything to do with it, so some spectators say that Big Phil ran past the bullets as he exited out the back door. Still waving his gun, Gordon left for a Louisiana saloon on Blake Street. On the way, he fired twice at a dog. In the Louisiana saloon, he got angry at the bartender for not serving him water with his whiskey and tossed the bottle at the rack of bottles behind the bar, smashing half of them. The patrons of the bar tried to make their quick exit, but Gordon blocked them, until he was accidentally pushed down by a newcomer to town, a German named John Gantz. The man was horrified and ran out into the street with Gordon on his heels. He knocked Gantz down and laid on his back, pulling his head back by his hair. He struck him several times in the head with his gun before shooting him fatally in the back of the head. Gordon stumbled away screaming that he had killed a damn Dutchman and he didn't care because he wanted to kill more. So at this point, he stumbled off to yet another bar and drank for a minute more before going down to the river and sleeping in some bushes until the next morning. A man found him and told him that there was a lynch mob after him. Gordon fled to his father's ranch and got a horse and headed out of town to another nearby ranch. The posse after him was formed by a man named Babcock, and they surrounded the ranch where Gordon was hiding out. Gordon escaped, however, and the last attempt by the posse on that day to catch him was a missed shot by a man riding a horse up to him. Gordon fled for Box Elder Station, where he bought a mule and crossed into Bent's Fort, nearly 200 miles from Denver. Back in Denver, the posse had had enough and began scouring the shores of the Platte River for more murderers and thieves. Some men ran into the bushes or dove into the river, bullets whizzing past them through the water or slicing the tall grasses. One man ended up being captured, and because there were no facilities to hold prisoners at the time, he was given 25 lashes on his bare back and banished from the town. 
But the irate citizens of Denver, many of whom witnessed the murder of John Gantz, were not satisfied with the whipping of a horse thief. They banded together and held a meeting where a large sum of money was raised for the capture of Jim Gordon. A man named W.H. Middaw agreed to hunt the Platte in search of Gordon. He was appointed Deputy United States Marshal, and with another deputy named Armstrong, they set out. In the meantime, the newly created Rocky Mountain News was filled with editorials from outraged citizens. They called not only for justice for John Gantz, but for the capture of Charles Harrison for the murder of Stark, the black blacksmith, and also largely for Harrison's involvement with the Criterion Gang. The Criterion Bar and Gang were named the hot seat of criminal mischief in Denver. Thugs from the Criterion Bar then approached the building of the Rocky Mountain News, and they ended up dragging the editor of the paper back to their bar. Harrison was not a part of the abduction and stood in between the thugs and the newspaper editor in his bar, and he held the crowd back with his gun while the editor escaped out the back. The editor ran to the news house and barricaded the doors and windows while he prepared two columnists for a shootout inside. One columnist named Merrick fatally hit one of the thugs, and a bullet passed right through him. He rode slowly up the street before being shot again by another man who cut him off. The other thug who was shooting at the news house was captured, and an impromptu jury was created to try him. A lawyer named A.C. Ford came to his defense, yet it was eventually decided that he would be banished. He left immediately and was later said to become a guerrilla during the Civil War before being shot to death in Texas. While Middaw and Armstrong still hunted Gordon, horse thieves and gangs started to overtake Denver. One member of a gang known only as Blackhawk named A.C. Ford, the criminal defense lawyer, as the leader of the organized crime in town. A lieutenant in the gang was also named and he was arrested while he slept, tried, and then hanged. A note was pinned on his body saying that he was convicted of horse thievery. A.C. Ford himself was chased out of town and shot in a duel in the woods. Neither of these men were actually given a trial. It was a great shock to everyone that the prominent Denver lawyer was the leader of a gang of outlaws, but at this point it seemed like anything was possible. Out on the prairie, Gordon made a mistake while he was on the run, when he wrote a letter to a friend of his. He had a man deliver it, and this man was stopped by Middaw and Armstrong while he was carrying out the errand. Gordon was fleeing for Texas with the 40-team wagon convoy, and Middaw planned on catching him along the way. In questioning at stops, he learned that a man fitting Gordon's description had been leading a convoy before breaking off to ride alone. Now was their chance. After gaining on his trail and missing him by a matter of minutes in one town, they came upon a man grazing his mule in a field. It was Gordon. He didn't even try to fight back, and his gun was taken from him. He was completely unnerved with a pale face and trembling hands. He thought he was scot-free after leaving the convoy and heading for Texas. They had the local blacksmith shop attach irons to him. The nearby town of Leavenworth had heard about Gordon, and a mob was already forming when he was brought through. Many Germans happened to be living in Leavenworth, and many of them knew John Gantz. Hundreds of angry men took to the streets. The local judge let him free by a legal technicality, and they had to form a posse around Gordon as he was taken to the local jail amidst screams from the mob to hang him. By nightfall, the stakeout of Gordon's jail cell by the lynch-thirsty mob had become a sort of impromptu campout. Fires were lit, vendors sold food and water, and groups of men chanted and stomped back and forth. It was eventually decided that the legal technicality should be ironed out and that Gordon be placed into the custody of Middaw to return to Denver. 
On the way to a local hotel with Gordon, ropes were wrapped around his neck three times and he was carried by deputies. He was battered and bruised by fists coming from every direction. And back in Denver, news of Gordon's capture was met with cheers and celebration and Middaw was deemed a hero. But the battle to get Gordon to Denver wasn't over as there were still many miles to drag the man. He did so with a chain fastened around the waist of himself and to Gordon. Neither slept on the trip, and they made it back to Denver on September 28th after Middaw had ridden for two months and nearly 3,000 miles in search of him. A council was convened, and a judge named A.C. Hunt was presiding, who would later become a territorial governor for the area. The People's Court was convened, and this case would end up setting the precedent for how Denver was to treat criminals and get control going forward. This trial would send the clear message that Denver was either in favor of law and order or kind on murderers and drunks. The trial was held in a grove of cottonwoods before 1,000 people. Gordon had a team of lawyers putting up a defense for him. Witnesses were called and questioned. The trial lasted a few days and ended on October 2nd. The verdict was guilty of murder, and Gordon was sentenced to hang on Saturday, October 6th, 1960. He responded to the sentencing with a courteous bow. While Gordon awaited his execution, talk was widely circulating that the days of Denver and the rough-and-tumble town of murderous drunks was coming to an end. Holdouts of the gangs and defenders of Gordon, who said he was not responsible when he killed Gantz because he was drunk, challenged their opponents to duels publicly in newspapers. In a Rocky Mountain News, Gordon said that he owed his life to Middaw, but that during that half-hour street battle— where he was being pulled and tugged on by the mob, he had died a dozen deaths, only to be saved and dragged back to the scaffold. He also wrote an editorial about his perspective on the crime, in which he again stated he was not responsible because he was drunk, which was apparently an argument that held some kind of weight back then, as his supporters began petitions to free him. Nevertheless, armed guards brought Gordon to the scaffold to hang him. The stage was set on the east bank of the Cherry Creek River, and Jim Gordon was hanged, and was made an example of, although it was the right example. Middall was made the sheriff. Shortly after December 2nd, 1960, Charles Harrison, the man who ran the Criterion Bar and Gang and who had killed the blacksmith Stark, shot and killed James Hill in the Criterion Saloon. Sheriff Middall went down to the saloon to arrest him and found himself surrounded by ruffians inside. Harrison asked the sheriff if he was making a social call, and the sheriff informed him that he was under arrest for murder. Harrison jeered that it must be because he had been keeping the bar open on Sundays. Harrison left with Middaw, knowing full well that his gang would all parrot his defense on the stand. And that they did, acquitting Harrison. But Harrison would soon meet his fate, dying a couple of years later while fighting for the Confederacy during the Civil War, while trying to raise a Confederate regiment in the Pikes Peak region. They ended up being wiped out by Osage tribe Native Americans under the direction of a Union colonel. Middaw was eventually shot and killed in Julesburg, Colorado, by a man believed to be one of the ruffians he drove out of Denver, but the Wild West days of Denver were already far behind on the dusty trail as the city moved forward into industry. Thanks, guys. That's the story of Jim Gordon and the ending of the Wild West days of Denver. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, check out the Instagram and my Facebook page. And if you need to contact me, I'm at coloredredpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to have a brand new episode for you guys within the next couple of weeks that's from the past decade. And this one is actually going to be a mysterious death case. 
And I'm going to pretty much state the facts and everything leading up to this in the episode, and I'm going to let you guys decide what you think this is, a suicide or a murder. So that'll be coming up in the next couple weeks, so until then.